You're listening to the Enclave Community Church Podcast. For more information about Enclave, follow the links in the description. Enjoy this week's sermon from Jay Hyatt. The scripture reading today is Matthew 11, verses 3 through 5, and then 25 through 30. And I forgot my glasses. And they said to him, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that we do have you to carry our burdens. There's so much pain and suffering in the world, in the community, and in our little church. But we know that we have you, and we have your word to remind us, and we're grateful for that. And we're grateful for you in our lives every day. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Jonna. My name is Jay, for some of you who might be new here and not know me. If, if you've been here for a while, then you've probably already seen too much of me. Um, thank you. But uh, I'm one of the elders here, and I came to, to Turlock uh, just over 20 years ago now to lead Missionary Gospel Fellowship. That was a big step in our lives, a big change of of life, I had been a fireman before that for 30 years, and then uh, came here to be the director of a mission. That was shortly after I'd finished an MBA program, and, and I knew that God was making a change in our lives, but I didn't really know what it was going to be like. And coming here, making a big change, we went from a very small house to a very big house so that each of our five kids could basically have their own bedroom, and they had been squeezed together like with a shoehorn before that. But besides those kind of changes, working as what you might say a professional religious person really started to shift my understanding of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. I had grown up Southern Baptist, and that comes as a package along with a a pretty particular view of what it means to follow Christ, even though we talked about 
all the time. We talked about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And by that we meant that we're not saved as a group. We're saved because of what each person believes and uh, accepts Jesus Christ on their own. But what that meant to live in relationship with Jesus Christ sometimes was a little hazy. It didn't really look like a relationship that you might have with a friend. Certainly not like a relationship like you would have with a family member. But that was the environment that God started me in. And that was where I desired, truly desired, to turn my life over to Jesus Christ, to receive him as my savior and to follow him. And so I, I tried to follow him. I tried, therefore, to keep his rules. And we know that we're not saved by following the old law, that is the law of Moses, but it's easy to get the idea that we are actually following Jesus Christ by keeping rules. And that idea is pretty prevalent in the group that I grew up in. As I got older and I began to ask some questions, I was actually invited to leave that church. <laughs> and I did. And actually, that came with a, a kind of a sense of, of freedom because I never would have left on my own. I, I felt like a loyalty and an obligation to those people that I had grown up among who had been kind to me and who had in many ways nurtured me in the faith, but had, had also been part of my life from boyhood. I mean, from as young as I can remember. I attended that church from when I was two years old until I was about 20, 18 or 20. And then I started going to another church uh, that had a more current biblical doctrine and at Calvary Chapel and you know, teaching through the Bible, teaching the whole counsel of God as, as it is said. And um, I developed and got into uh, lay leadership in the church because other people could see that I really did want to follow Jesus Christ. Still wasn't really good at actually keeping those rules though. But I discovered through that process that he, that is Jesus Christ, had more in mind than me just getting good at keeping those rules. Something much more important, much deeper, much richer and more beautiful. And coming here to Turlock and working with people from a variety of church backgrounds and all committed to Jesus Christ. I mean, like these are people who set their lives on the altar and they want, they want to follow him, serve him with their whole life and their lives demonstrate that. And yet they come from different perspectives and different backgrounds. And I began to see that there was something that we all shared a bit of and none of us maybe get quite perfectly, but that there is really a relationship with Jesus Christ that he invites us into. And this invitation doesn't come the way we might expect. So when Jesus said the words that, that John had read this morning, that part uh, in the last part there, uh, particularly verses 28 through 30, where Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I received that scripture with gratitude and a sense of freedom. 
because it was taking me beyond keeping those rules. That's what I understood he, Jesus to be inviting us, that it was like the yoke is important. But that invitation where he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, helped me to understand that, that it's not something that I can do that I am responsible to do, like keeping those rules and getting better and better at it. Although my life began to reflect more and more the heart of those rules that I had been brought up to try to obey. And that was in a process of walking with him. But there's so much more. So Jesus gives this invitation actually to unbelievers. In the beginning of Matthew 11, Jesus was preaching the good news, that is the gospel of the, of the kingdom. And he was going around the countryside and helping people with whatever they needed. He was healing the sick, freeing people who were in oppression to demonic spirits, giving sight to the blind, restoring hearing to the deaf, opening eyes, ears, hearts, and giving people the life that they felt they were denied by some infirmity. This was not only miraculous, but it was becoming famous. Like Jesus was being talked about. Well, if you remember, John had come before Jesus, John the Baptist. And this chapter is when Jesus is doing this ministry and the disciples of John, who's now in prison, it's kind of a shock for a prophet of God, right? To, to be put in prison because we know God is all powerful. So what's this about? And so John sends disciples to Jesus who ask Jesus, are you the one? Are you the one we have been hoping for, longing for, for generations? This is a people. These two men, John and Jesus, were sent to a people who were oppressed by the most powerful nation on earth. They were under the subjugation of the Roman Empire. They did not have their own laws. I mean, they had their own religious laws, but those were superseded and controlled by and restrained by the laws of Rome, this dominating world power. Now, this wasn't the first time that God had sent to a people, to a people who were in bondage. If you remember like what Pastor Andrew was preaching concerning Stephen's defense before the Sanhedrin, Stephen went all the way back to the beginning of the, of the nation of Israel coming out of Egypt. And so then at that time also, God had sent a man of themselves. He sent to the Jews, a Jew, but one who had been raised in royalty, who had been taught all the wisdom and had all of the information available to this dominating world power because Egypt at that time was the most powerful nation on earth and God's people are subject to that worldly power. And God sent to them a man who had been raised in royalty but who was like them. And Moses came to deliver them and he did miraculous signs and wonders showing God's judgment upon the nation of Egypt 
and bringing the people, that is the people of Israel, out of Egypt. And they followed willingly, joyfully. They came out marching with their heads held high for the first time in probably 10 generations. But they still have the habits of slavery. As they come out, God doesn't send them directly to the land that he has promised Abraham. So remember that God is fulfilling his promise to Abraham through these people. He looks upon them and, and they're a pitiful lot. Yet he is going to fulfill his promise to make a great nation of Abraham, to bless the world through Abraham's descendants, through these people. And he brings them out of Egypt and instead of taking them directly to the promised land, he turns them to the south, to the shore of the Red Sea and tells them to camp at this particular place. You know what happened. At that same time, Pharaoh decides, despite all those judgments that came upon Egypt, we made a big mistake letting these people go. We've lost all of our slave labor. And they decide to go after him. So he gets in his own chariot, summons all of his charioteers and captains over them. And the whole Egyptian army comes after the children of Israel. Children of Israel have no weapons. The children of Israel have no training. They're not an army. They're a big rabble. And the Egyptians think because they turn to the south that they're lost in the wilderness, the wilderness of the Red Sea. And they come together at a place called Pi-Hahiroth. Well, from the time that they had come out of Egypt, God went before them in a cloud, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Same thing, but it just looked different day and night and led them to this particular place. So they can't have made a mistake. They're being led by almighty, all wise God. And yet when they come to this place on the shore of the Red Sea and then the scouts say, hey, the Egyptian army's coming up on us and they're trapped, they begin to fear. And they think, they tell Moses, you know, what are you gonna do? Like, they're gonna kill us all. Why did you bring us out here to kill us? We'd better, not, we'd better off stayed in Egypt. So they still have the habits of slavery. And what do slaves do when they're uncomfortable or when they're fearful? Complain. That's what the Israelites did. God wasn't dismayed because he had a plan. So they come to this impossible situation on the shore of the Red Sea, enemies behind them. And God moves that pillar of cloud, his very presence from in front of them to behind them. And he now becomes their rear guard. So the Egyptians can't get to him. And he tells Moses, why are you standing there? Raise your rod over the sea and I will make a way through the sea. And he did. So he caused an east wind to blow all that night. They marched through the Red Sea. They crossed over. Keep that thought in mind. They crossed over. Although they went under where the sea was, they crossed over on dry land. And they came to the other side. Now, that's obviously a big miracle. And obviously the presence of God lifted from between them and the Egyptians and went back in front of them 
It doesn't give that particular detail in the account, but we know because then the Egyptians see them getting away through this dry land going through the middle of the seabed, and the Egyptians go after them and are destroyed. God lets the water return, drowns the Egyptians, and the Israelites see all these dead Egyptians on the seashore. And of course, they plunder their weapons and armor. So now they're at least partially armed. And they have come through a situation that had no human way out of it. They had crossed over. And then three days, three days into the wilderness, they come to a place and they're without water. But after three days, they come to this place and there's water. But the water is bitter. They can't drink it. It's probably alkaline. So not only is it horrible tasting, but it would be bad for you to drink. What do the people do? With the habits of slavery, they complain. So did you bring us out into the desert to kill us with thirst? So you saved us from the Egyptians, but you're gonna kill us with thirst. I mean, really? Miracles are happening left and right. Miracles brought them out of Egypt. Miracles have preserved their lives. And now they're in this uncomfortable place and they're accusing God of, and Moses of wanting to kill them with thirst in the desert. But God shows Moses a tree Now, I don't know what kind of wood objects they were interested in or used to in their slavery. And I wonder if a tree reminded them of a yoke of slavery by which they might carry burdens. But it reminds me of the cross of Jesus Christ. And when Moses took this tree and throws it into these waters of bitterness, the waters become sweet. The people can drink it, even enjoy it, and they're saved again. And they go on from there to the very mountain of God to meet with God. And God speaks verbally to that whole group of people. Turns out that is so terrifying that they tell Moses to go talk to him and we'll do whatever he says, but uh, don't let him talk to us anymore. <laughs> that's, you know, I mean, I, I don't know what I would have felt like or, or done myself. So I'm not going to ridicule them, but it is funny. So anyway, they've, ha they've got this encounter with God, almighty God, after going on this journey. And remember, when Jesus invited these people who are inquiring about what the kingdom of God is like, to follow him, that is, take up his yoke and follow him for his yoke is easy and his burden is light. That's what was happening with the children of Israel. And they came through these stages of being confronted with their own inadequacy and confronted with God's sufficiency and God's holiness and his purpose. And he gives them good laws, wise, just laws, 
And he also gives them ceremonial laws by which they can step away from their own inclinations and become purified in a way that will allow them to receive his presence and to offer themselves in his presence for his purpose and fellowship with him. And that's why he had them construct the tabernacle so that he might live among them so that God could go on camp out with them without destroying them. So they have this very particular place set aside in their midst, in the very middle of the camp, for him to be there with them. And he led them from there. But because they were still, still fearful and would not go in when he said, go in and take this land, that good land, and they sent the spies to verify that, first of all, that was a good land, but on the other hand, there were giants. And so they feared the giants more than they trusted in God even after all that. So they would not go in. God said, okay. The people who made that decision won't go in. But their children, the ones you said are gonna be killed by these giants and taken as slaves, they are gonna go in. So God led them through the desert again. One old guy used to say, had to take another lap around Mount Sinai. And he led them the other way, conquering enemies on their behalf, taking them through trials and, and sometimes plagues because of their misbehavior, because of their divided loyalties, because of them not really trusting in him. But he led them all the way around, conquering other nations, adding to their territory at the very last part, to a place near the Jordan River. And the Jordan River at that time was in flood stage, and their enemies across the Jordan in the town of Jericho, the city of Jericho, a, a mighty walled city, even though it might not be a great city in terms of population from our perspective, it was a big city, well fortified. And yet they were fearful because they had heard all the things that God had done for his people coming out of Egypt. So there they are, facing the Jordan. And God told Joshua now, Moses didn't get to go in, but that's a different story, uh, to send the priests ahead with the ark. And as soon as their feet touched that flood stage river, the water dried up, it flowed away. They crossed over the Jordan. They crossed over on dry land. And Joshua told them to stay there, that is the priests holding, carrying the ark on poles, to stay there in the middle of the Jordan. And one guy from each of the 12 tribes, probably the biggest, strongest guy in each tribe, got a big rock from the center of the Jordan and they piled it up, made an altar to remember what God had done. This last thing that God had brought them through, had allowed them to cross over the Jordan into the promised land. Now the promised land had been promised to Abraham and to each of his sons and then on down, that was what the hope of the Israelites was, was to be back in this land that's now called the land of Israel. But at the time it was called the land of Canaan. And a lot of other nations lived there who had horrible practices. And God drove them out before the children of Israel. But for the children of Israel, that land 
is in a lot of ways what Jesus is to us. It was their identity. Now it's called the land of Israel. And they are, they are Israel. It's their provision because they were farmers and God sent rain in early and late rains to uh, do dry land farming, raising wheat and other crops, all kinds of grain and pasturage for their animals. So it's their, their identity, it's their provision, it's their place, their place in the world. And those are the things that Jesus is to us as well. We're Christians. We are identified with Jesus Christ. He is our provision. Not just the job that you might have or whatever provision that you see, you know, that's how you get money to live. But your provision for everything that you need is in Jesus Christ. And they got there by crossing over. And I'm making a point to this idea of crossing because it reminds me of the cross. And I think that's on purpose on God's part that we use that word cross for crossing over and also the cross on which Jesus was crucified. So when they crossed into the promised land, God immediately had all the men because they had not done this on the, on the, the journey for those 40 years, stop and be circumcised. That means you're not ready to fight. And so for three days, they're stuck in camp, not able to do anything, and they're on the same side of the river as their enemies, as the people who know that they've come to drive them out. They're vulnerable, but they're safe because they're protected by God, but only because they're protected by God. There is no human reason that the, all those Canaanites didn't gang up on them and wipe them out but God arranged it so that didn't happen and gave them victory. And victory led to victory, along with some defeat. But I don't want to go into that part of the story because I want to take that example and apply it back to our relationship with Jesus Christ. Because this invitation that is so precious to me, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That is such a precious passage to me. And yet, there's another invitation that Jesus gives that is recorded in each of the Synoptic Gospels. I mean, it's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's recorded twice in Matthew and twice in Mark in different versions. So in Matthew 10.38, Jesus says, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. In Matthew 16, 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. When he had called the people to himself, or pardon me, this is Mark 8, 34. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And in 1021, 
And 1021 is when Jesus is talking to the rich young ruler. You remember that story where a young man who is wealthy, well thought of, of great reputation, he's actually a leader in the Jewish nation, comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus tells him, well, keep the law. And the guy says, I've done this. He, you know, Jesus, and he mentioned several. And he says, I've done this from my youth up. What more do I lack? And then Jesus tells him, give up all that you have. Sell all of your goods. Give it to the poor. And come, follow me. And then, speaking to the people around, he says, well, Jesus, looking at him, loved him. So don't forget that, okay? So Jesus has given this rich young ruler a drastic commandment, like one that no one would want to hear. And then when he is sorrowful because he has great possessions and he's not ready to give them up, Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack Go your way, so whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. So for that young man, there was something between him and God. And that was what he trusted in. His position, his wealth, his power. And that was what was needed to be surrendered. And that is what identifies the cross that he had to bear. Then in Luke 9, 23, also Jesus said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And so when Jesus gives this invitation to all the people, people who are confused, pressed down, and they don't really yet have a relationship with God. They're still wondering what the kingdom of, of God is all about. Jesus gives this invitation of come, take my yoke and learn from me. And if we come to Jesus and we desire to follow him, then we'll find that he is with us in that and he is guiding our steps. So, in those days, like if we move goods around, we usually use like semi-trailers or at least pickup trucks or something like that. And it's mechanical. In those days, if you wanted to move a heavy load, you would use a team of oxen. And an ox cart is pulled by generally two oxen. You can arrange for more, but generally it's pulled by two oxen. Now a young ox, it's not like having a brand new motor in your vehicle. A young ox doesn't know what to do. It's liable to run your cart off the road, liable to trample you or somebody else and cause all kinds of mayhem. And so to train an ox to be productive and to pull a load, you take a young ox and you put him in a yoke. You guys know what a yoke looks like, right? It's a big piece of wood that rests upon the neck of the ox. And oxen are built with a big hump at their shoulders. And so that big piece of wood is carved to conform to their neck and rest against that hump on their shoulders. And when they lean into it, then they can pull a heavy load because they're big, strong animals, just not bright. And so 
you put two oxen in the, the yoke together to pull, and that's balanced. But also, when you're training a young ox, you put them in the yoke with an old ox who's experienced, who's been through this before. And whatever the young ox is inclined to do, he finds the big older ox constraining his direction, his step, his pacing, his speed. And he learns what to do and how to act and what to expect from this intimate fellowship with this older ox. And that's what Jesus is inviting us to with him. So when we want his salvation, we come to him and we find that he will instruct us in what it means to live as a Christian. But that's not the end of the story. Because as you are in this yoke, pulling along from day to day, and you find that some of your bad habits are dropping off and you're becoming less attached to the things of the world that you were ashamed of before and you want to be free of, those things are kind of drying up and falling off and you're feeling good about that, that process. And you feel like you're becoming more like Jesus. And, and I felt like, like that as I was growing through these different instructional phases of God bringing me to himself. But then, someday, you're going to find, and it doesn't come as a written invitation, just someday you're going to be confronted with a situation and you will find that that yoke on you that is easy to bear because there's a bigger ox sharing it with you has turned into a cross and you cannot feel the presence of God with you in it. When Jesus faced the cross, he did not welcome it. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane how he prayed and he had prayed so many times and, and had so many prayers miraculously answered. And yet in Gethsemane, He's praying, Lord, Father, if there's any way, any other way, let this cup pass from me. And then what did he say? Yet not my will, but yours be done. Right? So if we're going to bear the cross as a follower of Jesus Christ, that's what it means. Our heart has to come down to that point. Our heart has to say, Lord, I desire this, yet not my will, but yours be done, and accept whatever he does. So if the Israelites had had, had that attitude, they would not have been stirred up when they're on the shore of the Red Sea. They would have been kneeling, praying, yielding their hearts to God, and they still would have been delivered. Same, crossing the Jordan into the promised land. But Jesus, and remember we're disciples of Jesus. On that occasion, God didn't respond verbally. But the answer was obviously there is no other way. And Jesus went through the cross and died. He was brutally abused before death. And then he bore that cross until his strength failed. And he was a, a tradesman. He's a carpenter. 
So he had been lashed unmercifully and, and he was spent, done in. And his strength failed and somebody else had to carry the beam of that cross. There was nothing more that he could do except follow. And he did. And he submitted to that cross. Even though we know, because he told his disciples, that he could have called down 12 legions of angels and stopped that at any point and didn't. He went through the cross. And we like to say that he went through the cross for us. And certainly he did. That's the way it worked out. But his purpose, his aim, the passion that motivated him in that was the glory of God the Father. It, we're part of that. Isn't that strange to say? We know how weak and fallible we are. And yet we, following Jesus Christ, are part of the glory of the Father. We're part of what God describes as his own inheritance. So Jesus, looking to the Father, felt abandoned by the Father. And when we go through experiences like that, where the yoke that we're bearing comfortably, and we know that we're doing a good job, we know that we're pulling the load, we know that we're doing what should be done, and then something comes into our lives that is so far out of left field, we can't make any sense of it. And that yoke transforms into a cross and we can't feel God's presence anymore at that time. And that's what happened to Jesus on the cross. He said, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? And we can examine the theological reasons that that condition would prevail. But this is what Jesus in every one of the synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and every one of those invited us to share with him. That's the experience. And if we follow him faithfully through those experiences, then we will share in the result. And the result of Jesus dying on the cross after three days of darkness, three days of despair, three days of death. Jesus was raised to new life. He was not raised to the old life. He didn't just come back. He came back and was glorified. And he sits at the right hand of the Father. And we are seated with him in the heavenly places when we accept the transforming power of God's work in us through those times where that comfortable yoke of following Jesus Christ has turned into a cross, when we can't feel the presence of God anymore and our souls don't know how to react. Through those times, those seasons, there is a supernatural work that occurs in our hearts if we do not turn away. If we will say, not my will, but yours be done then something changes in our hearts that opens the door for us to participate in the place of Jesus Christ where he is right now, seated with him in the heavenly places 
where the glory of God the Father is available to him, where he is above all principalities and powers. There is nothing that can frustrate the will of God here on earth, but there is nothing that can allow us to predict exactly what he is going to require of each one of us. So we can only follow and we can say, not my will, but yours be done. And when we are prepared to surrender those things that we think make our life worth living, when we genuinely give those up, many times, as happened with the Israelites, many times those things will be restored, but not always. And when they are not restored, that does not stop God from giving us a blessed life. If we're going to define our lives in a certain way and say, I have to have this for my life to be happy, for my life to work, then we're blocking ourselves off from what God wants to do. And yet when we say, not my will, but yours be done, then we open ourselves to receiving the blessing that he has that is going to come to us and it's going to come to us because of what we have given up. And I don't know how this works. There's, it's a supernatural thing and so I can't chart it for you in human terms, but it's a reality. It's a reality that when we give up that thing that we wanna hang on to, and if God says no and he takes it away, then he will open the door to blessings that we could not have imagined before, that we couldn't understand before and we couldn't receive before. And so that's what I invite you to do today. Today, you're not facing a cross, probably. There may be something hanging over you that I don't know about, and that might be a cross for you. But if you had experienced that cross, you might not be sitting here today. But you will. If you're going to take on that yoke that is easy and the burden of which is light, at some point that yoke is going to transform into a cross and you will face that choice. My life, my way, or your way. Not my will, but yours be done. If you make that choice, the door will open to blessings that none of us could describe right now. But that's what I hope for, for you and for myself. And that's what I have seen God do on more than one occasion. So, would you pray with me? Dear Father, thank you. Thank you, God, Lord of heaven and earth. Thank you that you hold such good for us and the world cannot see it, cannot define or describe it or contrive a way to obtain what you want to give us. And we can't even get a, a firm grip on it from a human perspective. But Lord, we trust that you have a firm grip on us and we desire to walk with you, bearing the yoke that you would assign and trusting you when the yoke becomes a cross and when life no longer makes sense 
and in fact, when we despair of life. So please, at those times, hold us up. Carry us. Clothe us with your majesty, your glory, with the fruit of the Holy Spirit, with all the things that will reflect your glory to the world around us and which will draw our hearts into a deeper, life-giving fellowship with you. Be glorified now and always. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's sermon from Jay Hyatt. At Enclave, our mission is to cultivate and empower disciples, fostering a deepening connection with God and with one another. Together, we joyfully encounter, embrace, and embody the transformative love of Jesus wherever his calling leads us. For more information about us, please follow the links in the description.